You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, Life in Christ, we walk through 1 John, written to the church for our joy, our holiness, and our assurance. Let me pray for us, and we're going to finish uh, 1 John today. Um, there's actually a lot left to do, but I'm only going to focus in on a couple things because I wanted to go ahead and, and, and finish this up today. He's kind of just reminding us of all the things that he taught us, and he's bringing one thing to the forefront. This is what you can be confident in. You can have confidence in Jesus Christ. This is You are in Christ, so you can have these confidence that, that you have because of you are saved. So let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, for this day, Lord. We do pray again for Tommy and Lauren, uh, Father, as, as they adventure out into planning a church, Lord. Um, Father, I just pray that you would bless them. Lord, again, we give you praise for um, Ron's, uh, as he went to the, to the hospital this week with, with chest pains, and they found a blockage, they cleared the blockage, and now he's home resting and recovering, and I know that he'll start feeling better without that blockage, and we give you praise that all that went down, Lord, in your timing, and was able to get it fixed, and Father, uh, we thank you for that. Um, Lord, as we finish up First John, Lord, he has taught us much over the um, since the beginning of the year, Father, over the last six months, um, he has taught us much. He has taught us um, many things about what we should we can confidently know, what we um, how we should love, um, Father. And in all this, um, continually reminding us who we are in Christ, and that because we are in Christ, we have the Spirit, and this is how we are to go about it in the power of another. And Father, I just ask for your Spirit to help us today to work in us, and Lord, to work through me. And Father, I just pray that we can leave here today uh, just reassured in confidence in what we have and what we can do in Christ through another. And Father, I just give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to start this today in a kind of odd place. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning, of, to back to Genesis, simply because of the way John ends this Letter in in the way he abruptly ends the letter, and if you have it open, you can you can look at that verse and maybe start to put in why I want to start here because it, I think it's so important because John just unpacked everything, and and if we really stop and think about how things started in Genesis three with the fall, um, we can see all the things that John has been trying to teach us, and then and then the way he ends this so kind of abruptly and and using words that he really hasn't used. It, it, throughout the whole letter, it, it kind of we can kind of put it together to see what he's trying to show us again. So we go back to Genesis three, and, and, and we, when we think about the fall, and we, and we think about original sin, and and next week I'm I want to try to refrain from jumping into that. Next week I want to unpack original sin for us in a way that is not. Uh, that, that will actually put some pieces together, I think, for, for anybody that's gone, that, that went through the gospel fluency course, it, it's going to put some pieces together for you. For anyone that's like, okay, why do I struggle with this or why am I not struggling? I think it'll put some pieces together. It has really um, just helped me so much here in the last um, month and a half that I've been studying this and just keep on digging, digging and digging, digging into um, what this is and, and how this affects us. Because bottom line, original sin is what every person, every human being in this world right, is born into. So therefore, there's effects of that in every one of us. 
right? Even if you are, even if you are, are born again Christian, there's still effects of original sin because we lived however long it was without Christ. We lived without God in um, dwelling in us. So we, we formed many, many habits, right? That, that we lived without God. We lived in our own autonomy, right? We lived doing things on, in our own strength. And so he saves us and that's wonderful and, and, and it's full of glory and we're a new creation in Christ. But, but then he starts working on taking away all those bad habits, taking away all those things of the flesh. So if you go back to the fall, right, that, that, that the way Adam and Eve was, was formed with the, the breath of the spirit, that the spirit was connected to them in some way. Now, they won't exactly say that the Spirit dwelled in them, but somehow the Spirit influenced them. That's Old Testament theologians not wanting to pin it down because the Old Testament doesn't really pin it down, um, is, is per se. But what happened in the fall is the Spirit is removed. And, and I know that you guys have heard this, and I know that it's been used, you know, haphazardly, and it's been used wrongly, but in very much so, in a very real sense, that when the Spirit is removed, there is a hole in every human being. It's in your heart. It's in your inner being. That's what's happened. Is God has now moved away. And you were born with this hole. You were born with, separated from God. That's who you are. You are separated from Him. And, and what theologians may call, what happens because of this hole that's in our heart, is called existential loneliness. In other words, that, that we feel alone. We always feel alone. The pandemic kind of brings that to the forefront. It's like, no, no, no. That's just part of the fall. That, that we live in this loneliness because we have been separated from our Creator. We have been separated from God. So the rest of us, because of Adam's sin being handed down to us, we live our lives in autonomy. That's the original sin. That we live our lives trying to fix ourselves. We live our lives in, in the strength of ourselves. You know, the, the whole Christian walk is, is that song. How, yet not I, but Christ in me. How do we do that? How do I raise my kids? How do I do my job? How do I love my friends and love my neighbors? How do I love my spouse in the strength of another? Right? How do I do that? That's, that's what the Christian Life is about. So, because of the fall, we live in autonomy. We are always trying to fix ourselves. We are always trying to do things in our own strength. This is what John referred to. He did kind of hit on this whenever he called it the pride of life back there in chapter two. It's living in the power of self. That, that, we're, that we just that we do it on our own. We, we don't need anybody else. We don't need God. We just do it on our own. That is the default position of every human being on the planet. Right? And we'll see next week how, how that kind of flushes out in some people and, and the way it flushes out in the other people. But I'll, I'll leave that alone or I'll start preaching that message. Um, so now, because we have this giant hole, we try to stuff things in the hole. This is how we try to fix it. Right? So what happens is, is, let me give you marriage for an example. We get married, right? And, and then all of a sudden, this person that loves us, and we're supposed to love each other unconditionally, and we say our vows, and we make a covenant. In about week three of the marriage, we start taking our spouse and start stuffing them in the hole in some way, even if we're born-again Christians. Because, see, this is our default setting. And, and we will not stop doing that until we reach glory. But he's given us victory over it, and we could be assured of it. 
And we keep going back to it, but we can always go back to the cross. Why? Because the guilt and shame that we feel every time that we stuff something other than God into that hole is covered by the cross. Right? Every time that you feel regret, that's a good sign. That's a healthy Christian because the Spirit is bringing up this regret. Because if you don't feel regret, that means you're doing it in the flesh and you're loving it and the Spirit's not checking you. Right? So... We see this, that, that we stuff things in this hole and, and they're finite things. And they never, because they're finite, what do you mean? They, they don't last. They last for a season and we're finding something else to stuff in there. We're finding something else to chase after. We're finding something else to do. I, I know I'm describing myself. And I, I'm pretty confident from the word of God that I'm describing everybody that's listening to me right now. That that's what we do. Whether or not we're born again or not, that's what we do. And, and to what degree that we've allowed the Spirit and we live by the Spirit to, to, to get to the root of these things and to see that, that, that we are forgiven of those things and we can let those things go is how we grow in Christ. That's how we grow. That's how we grow. This is what Paul and John would call living by the flesh. And yes, we are saved, and yes, we are new creatures in Christ. But man, just like John tried to, to get at the people that thought that they were per- perfect and never sinned anymore, we all know that. We all get up and look in the mirror. We know differently, right? It's living by the flesh. And then one day, the, the flesh will be gone. This body will die off, and we'll get a new body that doesn't have those cravings, that, that is eternally connected to God, that that hole is permanently filled. And then the love of God permeates into all our different capacities. And then everything we do glorifies God. It is such a wonderful picture of how much God loves us and all that he has done to bring us close to him. Right? And the good news is, is God came to fix that problem. He came to fix the whole he came to fix it. First John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. This born again, it, you have a new heart. A spirit has been put in you. The, the hole has now been filled. But we still wrestle it away. We still wrestle in the flesh. Now we are to live the lives through the Spirit. That's what we're called to do. Each one of us, because we are born again, meaning born again means that that God has changed our heart. The new covenant is that I'll put my spirit in you so that it will cause you to follow all that I obey. That's what the new covenant is. That's what we celebrate. That's that's what we live under. And there's all kinds of grace because we're going to mess that up from now until the the day he takes us home. And and we live in, in the grace of what Christ purchased for us. That there is no shame and there is no guilt because Because we have been justified. We have been made right before God. So we live this life in the Spirit. And Ephesians 5.18 says this. Listen to what what he says. And this is like an impossible task. This is a command that's impossible. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And when Paul says this, be filled with the Spirit, that is a a continuing filling. And and the idea is within the Greek language that it is a present passive imperative. What does that mean? That is is a command for Joe that I must do passively. Now, how in the world are you supposed to do that? Now, if you tell me to, you know, um, 
to hug my wife, that's a, that's a command that I can, I can do. But this command to be filled with the Spirit is in the passive tense. That means that you can't do it on your own strength. Well, how in the world does that work? Well, that works like this. We yield our flesh. We yield ourselves to the Spirit and allow Him to move and guide our lives. That's what we are to do. We're we're so worried about working hard and doing this and doing that. When God's trying to call us just to stop and know that I am there and wait and pray and seek his face and to do it in the Spirit's power. Do you believe that the Spirit will do that for you? Do you believe that the Spirit is alive, living in you, that, that He is God, that, that He will actually move you that way? I know that all the Reformers and all the Puritans, they all believe that. They live that. That's why so many, we read so much of, of the older saints that how much time they spent praying. Because they were spending time with God, waiting for Him to move them so they're not out there doing it in Joe's strength, but they're out there doing it in the strength of another. To be filled with the Spirit. And by the way, this is a present command, so therefore it's an ongoing command. You are to always be filled. Every day you wake up. I've been practicing something now that when, when, I, when my eyes open up, I don't know how you are, I know how my wife is, this, this will be hard for her um, to do because like when I wake up, my mind is already in 35 different places. And, um, and some people wake up that way, some people wake up, it takes me a little while to get going, Right? It's just, it's just how we're wired, right? So now I got to stop all that because what I'm thinking about is all the different things I have to do in the day. So what I've been doing is I just like, okay, Lord, I'm open to you before I move. I'm open to you. What do you have for me today? What do you want me to focus on? What are you doing? Because Joe can work his guts out at things that he thinks is good, but, but unless God is, is working in them, it, it, he's just going to toil like in the hamster wheel. And that's every single one of us in our lives. That's every single one of us. Yes, there are things that we have to do. We have to work. We have to, we have to take care of our children. We have to love our spouses. We have to love our neighbors. You know, we have to do all these normal things. But are we open to the Spirit? And see, what happens because of the fall, because our inherited corruption, which leads us to cover our shame and our inherited guilt, leads us to hide our fear, we find prayer to be unappealing. <laughs> Your prayer life is unappealing, not so much that it is boring. Yes, I, I agree with the book that we teach that, you know, praying the Bible, but it's so unappealing is because when you spend time with God, what is he going to show you? He's going to show you, okay, Joe, you are here, and I want to move you over here. <laughs> Which is, should be a glorious and wonderful and joyful thing for us. Because then we're going to be more like Christ. But what happens is, is we cut that off by heaping the shame and guilt on us instead of just sitting in the weeds and allow the Spirit to pull things and guide us and show us. I mean, Calvin was a, a huge proponent of this. To know yourself and to know God. He was a, a huge proponent, proponent of this. Because ultimately every human knows that we are under condemnation. Every human knows it. They're just suppressing it and pushing it down. 
That's what Romans 1 says, and probably why Paul started Romans 8, a chapter about life in the Spirit. Therefore, there is no condemnation. That's what chapter 8 of Romans is about. It's about how to live in the Spirit. How to live in the Spirit. John knows this. And he closes out his writings. He wants to remind those he cares for so deeply that they can go to the Father. They can have confidence because they have eternal life. They've been born again. They have this new life, this dwelling in them. They are in Christ and they are in the Spirit. The first confidence John wants them to have is this prayer life. This is the first thing he talks about is, is we should have confidence because we have a new life. We have the new life, eternal life in Christ that we should be confident in prayer. Look with me at verses 13 through 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Notice that it says he hears us. It doesn't say he answers us. The way we want it to be answered, but he hears us, right? We have a, we have his audience. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Prayer is so vital to the Christian if we are to live by the Spirit. Prayer to the Christian is as much like breathing is to a human. What John is reminding them of is that we can go to God with confidence. Confidence knowing that all our shame that we try to cover and all of our guilt, which leads to living in fear, it has been removed because we are in Christ. We can confidently go to him. You are accepted by God in Christ. You are accepted by God in Christ. And most of us would say, oh yeah, I know that, for about 30 seconds. And then we slip right back down into it. We slip right back down into, into, into covering our shame and hiding our guilt. As we live a life of just doing it in our own autonomy. And what God has called, he's called to save us from that. To help move us. That, that as we live our life a little bit longer and a little bit longer and a little bit with, for, with Christ, we live a little bit more by the Spirit and a little bit less by the flesh. That's called sanctification. You know, it, it seems like that, that many folks live as, as deists. And a deist believes that, that God's not present. He's just like somewhere out there. Right? That he's somewhere out there. I don't think he's really all that near. He's just somewhere out there. But the Bible says if you're born again, he dwells inside of you. And we speak, and when we speak of hearing of, of course, God mechanically hears everything, right? Meaning he hears everyone. However, for you who are in Christ, his ears are open to us. His love, his heart is set towards us. You are his child. He loves you. This is put clearly by the blind man who was healed by our Lord. After he had been healed, the Jews questioned him as to who had done this, almost trying to prove to him that it could not have happened like that. You know, where he just said that, that Jesus healed me. Because they said, this man is a sinner. 
So the blind man replies in John 9.31, he says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. So we know that, that, that he, we have an audience with him. We have an audience with our Father in heaven. I know, said the blind man, that God has heard this man Otherwise, I would not have been healed. What he meant was that God is not ready to do what sinners ask of him. That God's ear is not open to them. That his ear is not enlarged towards them. However, if you are born again and you know you have eternal life, then you know that God is always ready to listen to you. I mean, think of Psalms 51 where... where David's buddy comes and actually helps him to see his guilt. And where does David go? He goes right to the Lord with it. He knew that God will be listening. His father will be listening. Lloyd-Jones says it like this. He is always ready to receive you in audience. You need never have any doubt about that. He is your father, and he loves you with an everlasting love. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. He is concerned about you. Think of an earthly father's love and multiply that by infinity, taking all sin out of it, and that is God's attitude towards you. You can have confidence going to the Father in prayer. And if you're accepted by God, John says, then our prayers will be accepted. He will hear our prayers. They will be accepted as long as we ask according to his will. Now we know something about God's will and that there is kind of two parts to it. And it's kind of been divided up in, in many different ways over, over the years and in, in the, through different theologians. So we know something that, that reformers would call the revealed will of God. So it's the revealed will of God. This is what we have in the, in the word. And some others have called that the will of command. Right, So the, we, we can open up the Word of God and we can confident on some things that God wills. Right, We, we know these things. So there's some things that, that we know and then there's some things that we don't know. The second part is the God's hidden will or secret will is what the Reformers would call it. And what others may call the will of decree. In other words, we, we know that everything that He commands but there's a will of decree. In other words, that, that God is consistently exercising his will and we may not know why all these different things are happening that he's willing and we might not owe that. It's his will of decree. This is what he says because if God wills it, it's going to happen. <laughs> it's just, it has to happen that way because he's God. Because that's who he is. And this is all rooted in Deuteronomy 29, 29 where it says the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this Law. So again, there's this idea that there's a revealed will and a secret will, and we don't know God's secret will, but we are to be walking in the Spirit enough, allowing His revealed will to influence what we do, and asking Him how we are to take part in it. We can, we can know all of God's revealed will, read and know the Bible. We can know some of God's hidden will, at least in respect to our life and those we are in relationship. This is called discernment. This is why we're having a discernment workshop. That's what discerning is about. 
It's, it's about spending time with God so that He can speak to you. That, that He can move through you. That as you pray, you'll be praying in His will. The Christian life is more about getting our autonomy out of the way than it is about using our autonomy to accomplish something. It's, it's about getting out of the way. Because we just, we, we'll mess things up all the time. This happens through prayer. And it doesn't happen through knowledge. See, it happens through yielding ourselves to the Spirit. And I can give you a simple test, and I failed this test 2,000 times this week. But how many things have you done this past week that you know that is wrong? That you know that maybe even are explicitly against the word of God. But yet you still did them. You know. You know so much. But yet we still sin so much. So it can't be all about knowledge, folks. It can't be. Because we we have the the example and, and the test that we all fail. So something has to happen. Something Something else is moving as, as we yield ourselves to the Spirit, so as we be filled with the Spirit, so therefore we can walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we spend time in prayer. We spend time alone with God. And Randy's going to give us some of those practices and techniques. It's training, right? Dallas Willard would tell you stop trying, start training. Because once we lay down the trying, that's our autonomy, and we begin to train with the spiritual disciplines, what happens is that as we do these things, then the Spirit of God is allowed to work in us and through us and actually for us. But you know what? As we pray, there's some things that the Bible even tells us, like gives us a posture of prayer to, so that we can possibly even, even get close to God's will in our prayer, right? There's some things that, the conditions that, that we must meet and observe, just some checks that, that the Bible has given us. The first thing is our motive in praying must be a correct and true one. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So is your prayer selfish prayers? Are they always focused on you, 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 you? Yes, do we pray for things that, that, that we need? Absolutely. Do we pray if we're, we're sick? Absolutely. But does it, are we doing it so therefore it glorifies God in the end? And, and the question to ask there is, is okay, if, if he would answer that right now, who would be glorified, God or me? God or me? So James is telling us that we must have a right motive for our prayers, or they're never going to be in the will of God, right? We're never going to find his will if, 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 if the motives are, are wrong. You know, why do we want your prayer to be answered? Why do I want my prayer to be answered? Is it so that he can, so that I can brag on God, right? Or is it just so I can get something for myself? Or maybe it's, maybe it's so that I can get something to fill the hole that we stuff consistently. The second thing is we must believe and have faith. 
We must actually believe that, that, that the God that we're praying to can actually do something about this or wants to do something about this or will do something about this. Matthew 21, 22 says, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. James 1, 5 through 8 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, and I'm pretty sure that this is the passage right here, James 1, 5 through 8, that Randy's going to land on. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So you can see how the motive and, and this double-mindedness go together, right? So he's, he's coming to this omnipotent God, the God that saved him, that gave him a new life, but... Really, my motive is to get something for myself, to glorify myself, and, and now you're unstable because you're not really believing in faith. You're not really believing in faith. When we are on our knees in prayer, do we really believe? Or does it just feel like a desperate cry in the dark? A desperate cry in the dark. There must be no doubt. We, we must be clear about God and our relationship to him. That's why John keeps reminding us, and that's why Paul always reminds us of who we are and who God is and what he has done and who we are in Christ. Rehearse those over and over again. There must be no doubt. Again, we should be clear about who God is in our relationship to him. Third, we must be abiding in Christ. And this brings it right around to the, to, to the yielding to the Spirit, to living a life full of the Spirit. 1 John 3.22, And whatever you, we ask, we receive for Him, because we keep His commandments and do what He pleases. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Are you abiding in Him today? What does that even mean? mean to abide in him is it does it mean to to like okay every command in the bible i must do those perfectly then i'll be abiding in him no that's not what he's saying at the end of this what does he say and i've said this probably 20 times the last two weeks apart from me you can do nothing abiding in him trusting in him lord i know i can do this but i'm going to stop and take a moment and I acknowledge that, that you love me so much that you've given me the opportunity to go do this. Now I'm walking by the Spirit. Now, now I'm open to what the, the Spirit has for me. It really requires you to believe that, that God is a real person that dwells in you that you have this ongoing conversation with. Through His Word, Absolutely. but also as, as he is united with you in his spirit. John has talked about obedience all through the book. We should not expect our prayers to be received and answers if we are living in willful sin or doing things contrary to the will of God, his revealed will. When we abide in him, 
When we are living out apart from me, you can do nothing. We cannot help to pray in his will, which gives us even more confidence that our prayers will be accepted. So we are taking the time to, to listen to God, to, to hear what he wants done. That, that we are reading his word and learning his revealed will. We can have confidence that our prayers will be accepted if we're living and walking with him. See, God does not leave it to chance for his children. He doesn't leave it to chance for his children. What are you talking about, Joe? He does not leave it to chance. Okay, so I, I took some, I, I, I got most of what you said, Joe. I got some of what you said, Joe. I got all of what you said, Joe. Now, now when I go, is, is, is that going to happen? Is it going to be okay? Is, am I going to be praying in his will? You know what? God's like, I'll take care of this. So we open up the book of Romans 8, 26 through 27. And what do we read about life in the spirit? It says this, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. Right? This is the, the, the weakness, the weakness of the will. This is Luther, Right? This is Luther saying that, that our wills are so weak. This is why we can't live autonomously. How many times do we say, I am going to do X, Y, Z tomorrow, and we get to X, and Y and Z never gets done. Why? Because our wills are weak. He has fixed our weak wills. You know what he did? He gave us the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the power of God to walk. Now, most likely, we're not going to get that power if, if, if Y and Z is not God's will. He's just going to let it fall off the table. And then we learn. What do we learn next time? Oh, okay, wait a minute. Y and Z was not a, what God wanted, so let me, let me seek him a little bit more to figure out what he wants to do. This is the Christian life. This is, this is what we do. This is everything that we do. And, and, and God doesn't leave it to chance. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself... The spirit that lives in us intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the spirit. So in other words, that we're praying and, and we're asking all these things. And a lot of times that, that we're not even cognizant of, of the deep intercessions of our heart. And the things that, that whether or not they're, they're actually for our glory, for his glory, it doesn't matter. I'm going to take care of it. Because God knows my heart. And the Spirit's going to pray for me. And he prays for you. Listen to what he says. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. How? According to the will of God. So the question to you is, is how much time do you spend alone with God? To even give him the opportunity to do this. To give him the, the, the opportunity to, to pray for you. It's just amazing how much God loves us. And how he's like, okay, I, I, I designed you. I know what the fall did to you. And man, I, I put some things in place that you just can't get out of. If I want to save you, I'm going to save you. It's just amazing. Lloyd-Jones again says, it works like this, you see. When you believe that your prayer comes to your heart from the Spirit of God, you may be sure that an answer to your prayer will also be given from God. 
If I am surrendered to God, and if my one concern is to please Him, as I pray, I feel and know that this petition has come to me from God, and I pray with confidence, I pray with assurance. Don't miss what John says here. Don't miss what he said in that verse. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Again, if we're praying in his will, they're already ours. They're already answered. That's what it is. We have the requests that we have asked. We have them. That's mind-blowing. That is just, just mind-blowing. That, that's how much God cares for you. That's how much God has designed the Word of God to, to teach us and show us what He's doing in our lives with the Spirit and just how far away from that we, you know, as, as churches have moved away from bringing everybody in and making a big show of it and giving you three things to do and sending you back out there so you can live in, in your original sin the rest of the week. Hey, what are we doing? So John, I got to keep moving. John then moves from petitions to prayer to intercession prayer, reminding his readers of brotherly love once again. In 1 John 5, 16 through 17, he says this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So who do we pray for? Who don't we pray for? And what is the sin that leads to death? This is the, the three main questions that, that, that I came out of from here. And I agree with Alistair Beck, and he's kind of said it this way. Um, when you go diving into figuring out what the sin that leads to death and the sin that leads not to death is, is you might become a bit more brighter, but you will not be any more clear about what it means. I have 18 commentaries that, that will tell you about 1 John, and there's probably about 15 different answers. So... I'm like, well, this isn't written so that we not understand it. And by the way, this would have been opened up and read. And so the Jewish people would have, you know, because most of the people were Jewish converts, most of some Gentile converts, that they would understand what it meant. So let me just give you some of the simplest ways so, so that I can try to help us understand this a little bit. John is telling us how to approach sin within the faith family. I know that for a fact. Right? He's, he's telling us this. He's helping us with this. Our first action should not be to talk to one another about it, but talk to God. Right? So you see a brother and sister sin. You match it up with the Word of God. Yes, I can confirm that the Word of God says that that is sin. Now, where do I go? Not to, my, not to my, uh, this person or that person or this person. You go to God first. I, I know John said that. I know he says that the first place we go is to God. Which lines up perfectly with what Jesus said uh, should happen in his teaching in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So you talk to God and then you talk to that person. 
right? Church discipline doesn't happen from the top down. Church discipline is supposed to happen from the bottom up, right? The elders should be the last people and, and have to do the, the hardest thing to do with someone that's falling under church discipline, the unrepentant sin, because what should happen is, is the brother or sister should have went to him and talked to him and said, look, man, I let me look in the Bible with you and let's talk about this. And if they're like, nope, I'm still not going to repent. Then you go and get a couple more brothers and sisters and you bring them to them. And then you go through that. And then whenever that doesn't work, then you come to the elders. And I, I think so many times that the church discipline acts like it's supposed to be from the, the top down and it's not. I can't know what's happening in everybody's lives. That's impossible. But you should know at least three or four people within the church that's what's happening Especially if you're in your D group and things like that. So the first place we go is to God when we see somebody sinning. And then we can follow Matthew 18 after that. God, what John says, God as the giver of life will grant life to those we pray for. God will give them life. He'll grant them repentance. He'll help them repent because he sent the brother and sister to help them. John says, I'm referring to those whose sins does not lead to death. So what's the sin that leads to death? There seems to be three views. Some have said that the sin that leads to death will only be known when the person dies. This is one theory, right? And what do they use? They use Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What do they do? They, they sinned against the Holy Spirit, died. Right? They lied and they died, right? So that was one theory. That's one theory that's out there, that, that we won't know that sin that leads to death. So we got to stop and think, is John talking about a believer or an unbeliever? Right? That's the other, that's that, when, when you throw that in there, it just kind of mixes the whole thing up. Because it seems like that the first part of it, he's talking about a believer, and maybe the last part of it, which maybe is where I'm going to land a little bit, he's, he's, like he's talking, and then all of a sudden he comes to mind those people that left. Remember way back in chapter 2 or 1, that, that those people that were of us, but they were not among us, and they left. And, and maybe he's talking about them, because Paul even handed some people over to Satan to hopefully bring them back to faith. I'm just going to use Alistair Begg's summary. The sin that leads to death is a bitter, hardened, resistant to the truth of God revealed in Jesus, which kind of lines up with that second idea of when John said this, that those that the sin that leads to death are those that left us, why did they leave us? Because they weren't truly believing the truth about Jesus, right? That's, that was their issue. And the person John has in mind is not the believer, but the one he said who went out from us because they were never of us. Because they refused to repent of their sin and enter into, right? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, these brothers or sisters or whoever was doing that false teaching within the body, you know, Matthew 18 happened. The brothers and sisters went to him and said, this is false, but they refused to repent of it. Maybe that's the sin that leads to death, which shows that they were not born again and goes with what John says in chapter, I mean, John says in the next verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not, touch, does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, so John it goes right into, right after saying that, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. 
So it seems to me that the sin that leads to death would be the person, right, that refuses to believe that Jesus is who he is. And I have all kinds of questions about that. And I'm just going to be honest with you. And I know I'm completely running out of time. But, you know, my first question is, well, that's every person that's, that, that's fallen into original sin. Is, is They're not going to believe Jesus is Savior until God moves on them and changes their hearts, right? Um, so I, I have some questions. Um, that's what I learned to the best of my ability. And we're, we're going to keep trudging. And, and Piper has a real good paper. And, I, and if you really, like, I need to know what this means, um, please, I, I'll send it to you. He has an interesting take. I wasn't going to unpack that all up here. Um, so I'm thinking that, that this, this hardening of the heart um, that re- refuses to believe the truth of God is the sin that leads to death. Which makes sense, because if that's who you are, you're going to die. Because you're going to die apart from God. So, um, so again, here John is giving the second confidence, first prayer, Second, victory over sin, right? So we, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and now he's going to talk to us about overcoming um, sin. Our new birth gives us confidence that God will keep us from the evil one, from temptation. But more importantly, even if we trip and fall and take the temptation, our justification before God is never in question, right? Your shame and guilt have been taken away. Even if we take the debate of the evil one, your shame and guilt have been taken away. Even though we are in a global conflict with an enemy that influences and in many instances controls societies, finances, and even governments, all designed to oppose the advancement of the gospel, ministries of mercy, and care for the weak and helpless. So he's talking about this, this global war that's happening that, that it's hard for us to get our mind around where, where Satan's in charge of this and God's kingdom has come but not fully come. And we live in this already but not yet idea of the kingdom that we have been saved or being saved. We will be saved and one day it'll all be taken care of, all destroyed, and God's kingdom will be set up. We have confidence that we who that is in us, the he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That we won't, we won't fall into that trap. And we have confidence in this truth because we have confidence in knowing Jesus, which is where 520 goes. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Because our union with Christ... We understand the truth of the gospel. We are safe from the claws of the evil one. We know the Father, and we abide in Jesus, and we know that apart from him, we can do nothing. We, know, we now participate in the new life that God has given us through his Son. We now have God living in us, inside of us, and he is working in us to change us. And then John closes his letter with a warning. And this is why I started with original sin. A warning that goes back to the fall. He understood that original sin causes us to live a life of autonomy. A life of trying to fix ourselves. Even though we are now creatures in Christ, we are learning to live by the Spirit. So John leaves us with a warning that every human who has lived apart from God does, and that is to fill the hole left by the Spirit with idols. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Little children, know that you have confidence that you are God's child and you can go to him in prayer. 
You can go to Him when you sin because your shame and guilt have been removed by Jesus' work on the cross. Little children, know that although you are sojourners in a land ruled by Satan, I will keep you. This enemy has been defeated and you have eternal life. Little children, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I pray that you know that today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit will work to anything that I made confusing, Lord. I pray that you would help folks know and can trust and believe your word and it's true. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that, man, we have confidence to go to you. That we need to live a life through the spirit. You would help us. That's a journey that is quite foreign to all of us. But it's very clear in your word. In fact, it's one of your commands. Lord, I I pray that, that nobody right here today is sitting there saying, I must try harder at whatever Joe said today. Because if they are, they're just living a life of moralism. I pray that they would go to you and say, Lord, help me. How do I do this through you? I don't have to address my shame. I don't have to address my guilt because Jesus justified me. And I can come to you right now, Lord. I can come to you when, when, next whenever we are reminded of what Christ did for me. I can, I can just rejoice. Because I don't have to say, I've I, I got to try harder at that. I can rest in you and spend time talking to you. And our effort is in, in training, not trying. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.